welcome to Radical Math Talk, the podcast dedicated to the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I will highlight the incredible educators who are reshaping, redefining, and decolonizing the way that math education is taught in our schools. In other words, this will not be your typical math podcast. My goal is to center the stories and hidden truths that will not only ignite a cultural paradigm shift in math education, but more specifically, explore the multiple ways in which math can be used as a vehicle for social justice and anti-racist solidarity. So if you are ready for a math revolution like no other, then sit back, relax, and lend me your ears as we embark on this journey together. Enjoy the show. Hey, what's going on, people? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Radical Math Talk, the show for the revolutionaries in math education. As always, I'm your host, Kwame Salfamensa. And if this is your first time tuning in to the Radical Math Talk podcast, I welcome you and I hope that you will return for future episodes because you're going to love this one. And if you are a returning listener or viewer of the podcast, I welcome you back and I hope that today's episode is one that you find informative, enlightening, and of course, insightful. So before we introduce our newest guest, just a reminder for folks who are on YouTube to hit that red subscribe button so you can get future notifications of new episodes. Also, if you're listening from Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your your podcast, make sure you subscribe there as well. Um, for those who have been asking me questions about how to contribute to the growth of the podcast, uh, we do accept donations through Cash App and Venmo. If you're on Cash App, our handle is money sign ID talk for Ed. If you are on Venmo, our handle is at Kwame SM. That's at symbol K W A M E S M. And to check out past episodes of the podcast, you can visit our official website at identitytalk4educators.com, or you can simply go to our YouTube channel, which is under my name, Kwame Sarfamensa. Thank you kindly. So we have ourselves another great episode, great conversation that we're going to have tonight. And this is revolving around the intersection between social justice and math education. So in recent years, we've had a lot of conversation and we've seen a lot of articles, publications, uh, talking about social justice. And what I've come to realize is there are certain people who claim to be social justice educators, social justice experts in education, but don't have the receipts when it comes to the work. They're not truly fighting or advocating for causes that would warrant them to have that title. Uh, but I don't want to go into that rabbit hole because we're going to be talking more about that as we uh, get deeper into this conversation tonight. But I have here someone who's been doing a lot of work with regard to social justice in the math classroom for many, many years, and I'm just excited to 
have her come on to just share the work she's been doing and and how she's been really making an impact in the higher ed community. So without further ado, I want to bring on Dr. Carrie Coca to the podcast to talk with us about her work, her journey, and what she's doing now at her new university. So let's bring her on. Hello. Hi, Kwame. Really excited to be here. Yes. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you for accepting the invite. And I am looking forward to the conversation today. So how are you doing? I'm doing really, really well. Awesome. I'm doing well. Awesome. Excited about our conversation. Um, and then, you know, future collaboration potentially together. Yeah, so so tell me, what's life like in Vegas? Because I know I've been to Vegas on a few occasions and people always like to think about the Las Vegas Boulevard strip and the casinos and everything. But as far as like normal life in the city, what what's that like? Yeah, I mean, so to me, you know, Vegas is not at all the strip. Um <laughs> It's, you know, great weather, uh, decent cost of living. I'm now at UNLV, um, so I'm really enjoying um, meeting new colleagues and students. Um, and uh, I think there's a pretty good, like, wellness community, too, in terms of, like, health and fitness, um, you know, which is something that I'm passionate about. Oh, I noticed that you saw some of, some of my recent Facebook stories. <laughs> um so you know i'm very active um yes uh and so you know las vegas is a great place for that in terms of wellness and fitness yeah we'll, we'll get into we'll get into all your extracurricular activities later on uh don't worry about that we'll, we're gonna touch <laughs> on that before we we get off of here but as always i always like to start the podcast with the mathography so this is basically just your math story, your real life math story. I always like to have my guests just share what their relationship is with math, mm -hmm. how they developed the love for math when they first encountered math, how that relationship has evolved over the years up until this present point, um, and how they've grown with math. So we know that you grew up in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. You ripped that hard. Yeah. So, so tell me about your early life in the Bay and how did math come into your life and how's it evolved with you, you know, over the years? Yeah. And I wanted to, um, well, at first I wanted to thank you for your labor and your time and all of your energy and the work that you do for this podcast um, and I also wanted to acknowledge the work of um, Julia Aguirre, Danny Martin, and Karen Mayfield Ingram around the math autobiography, you know, very similar to the mathography. Uh, and for me, you know, so I've been really reflecting on this um, question. Um, so my mom went to San Francisco State. She got her teacher certification. She never actually went into the field to be a teacher. Uh, but I think because she had that background, she was always asking me questions. Um, and so one of the things that she used to do was when we would go grocery shopping, 
she would tell me the price of every item that we were putting into the cart. And she would have me try to estimate what our total was going to be. Right. So we were doing math at the grocery store. Every time we went to the grocery store, um, the thing that really sticks with me the most though, in terms of doing math as a child was, so my mom is someone who wasn't the greatest with directions. And so I helped her navigate, you know, as a toddler, you know, I, I don't know, I think I was like three years old, I knew my letters. And so I could look at the map and follow with her, you know, with the first letter of each of the streets. So we would do each of the streets as we were going and she would say, okay, I'm looking for a street that starts with the letter X or what have you, right? And so we would go through the letters and she says that I literally helped her, like I was a legitimate navigator. Nice. <laughs> As a toddler. And I told her, I was like, mom, you shouldn't say that out loud. Like no one says that their toddler helped them navigate, right? Cause that's like pre GPS, all of those things. So, yeah. so I think that, you know, like, that, um, and she would try to challenge me, like, what's 25 times 25? And she said, I would start making tick marks because I was thinking about quarters, right? So she just would challenge me with mathematics and we would, you know, use it in real life. Like, I, I, I think I honestly really did help her navigate, <laughs> as silly as that sounds. Um, and so I had this really positive relationship with it um, going into elementary school um, middle and high school. I mean, I do remember really struggling with, um, calculus when I, when I took calculus in college. Um, and I think my relationship with mathematics at that point started to change a little bit. I, I majored in mechanical engineering. Um, and I think not that I necessarily started to have a fixed mindset about it, um, but I think that I lost a little bit of that sparkle. <laughs> this sounds so sad. I feel like to say this out loud as a math educator. Um, and I think um, in my mathematics education classes, um, at Stanford, I got to learn more about the actual conceptual understanding and thinking about, you know, really multidimensional problems. Um, and so getting to then be a teacher. So I started teaching straight out of undergrad um, in 1999. And so getting to work with young people and getting young people excited about math and having my students come up to the board and be the teachers for the class um, is, is, I think what got me excited about mathematics to the same level as kind of my toddler excitement about it. Oh, that's cool. And I think when I was an undergrad, I feel like I lost some of that spark on myself because that's when things got real. You mentioned mm -hmm. being exposed to the conceptual part of the discipline. So, Tell me, what was the most difficult course you took during undergrad? Difficult math course, of course. I think multivariable calculus was the most difficult one because, I can see that. yeah, because, you know, I, so I, I went to Independence High School. It's in East San Jose. Um, it's highly tracked. 
so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to get into education was I saw these inequities. And so even though I had taken AP tests and passed AP tests, and I, I was able to take multivariable calculus, I think it was my first year of college. Um, I don't think I was really prepared for it like some of my classmates were. Because mm. some of my classmates went to prep schools and private schools. Uh, and so they, I think they just had a, di a different, I, I guess I want to say like a different academic base than I had. Okay. Um, and so, I mean, really how I survived was I um, found classmates to work with, right? So like the power of collaboration and community and group work um, was really what got me through all of my math classes and my engineering classes as well. Uh, cool. I think it was probability for me. Okay. Like probability really kicked my behind uh, to the point where I withdrew from the course after the midterm. And you know how that is. You see that you're struggling, but then you don't want that grade to be on a transcript. So mm -hmm. calculate the grades <laughs> to see, well, how much do I need to get in this midterm? in order to still be on track to pass. Right. If you don't hit that mark, all right, let me go to my advisor and say, all right, I, I got to drop this class. I'm going to take it in the summertime. <laughs> so that was my experience with probability. But but what you're saying is so true. Um, looking back at my own experience, I didn't take a single AP math course in high school. Mm -hmm. The highest level that I reached was college algebra two. Okay. I didn't have any trig courses. Um, I didn't take calculus until my first three semesters of undergrad. And I was taking calculus one through three, back to back to back. And, you know, like I said, that's when things got real. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I definitely remember. You know, it's like you're kind of sitting and in, in, it's in these lecture seats. Once mm -hmm. you get to college, right? And I just remember thinking, like, what is everyone else thinking right now? <laughs> Are they understanding what's going on? Am I the only one that's lost? Right? Yeah, it was a struggle. And I would be in the lecture hall looking at that one student that raised their hand every single time they're answering all the questions. And I'm thinking to myself, how are you able to follow what this professor is saying? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, I'm totally lost in the sauce. So <laughs> I was that person who would go to the tutoring center, get extra help. They do some of the problems for me to model. And literally that's how I got by mm -hmm. uh, those first couple of semesters because it was just that difficult. And I was someone who was getting A's and B's in math all throughout K to 12. It just came so easy to me. So this was when I first experienced the fact that, you know what, maybe I'm not invincible. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm mortal. I'm a right, mortal. Right. I never felt that way before that time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny that you said lost in the sauce. One of my colleagues, my first year teaching in New York, she would always say that. She would say, I think the kids are lost in the sauce. Um, so I love that phrase. Yeah, and I think it's good that 
some professors have that awareness because you know from experience not every professor has that awareness of okay i don't think they're getting what i'm saying let me slow down let's run it back do a take two see if i could approach in a different way so i can get more people uh to see where i'm going well the thing see the thing too now that i now that i know now that i work in higher ed uh, is that as a professor, you're really evaluated on your research. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, is that really faculty members are not, you know, they may not, I don't want to say they may not care as much about their teaching, but we are incentivized to focus on our research over our teaching because our research is really how we get tenure, right? That's really how we're evaluated. So I think that um, that can become like so much of a focus that the teaching part, and then also think about it for math professors, they don't get the opportunity to learn pedagogy. Mm -hmm. They just learn the content, but they don't learn how to teach it to other people. Facts. Right. In, 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 you know, really any, any subject. That's true. That's mm-hmm. true. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I feel like in your case, because you entered academia with experience of being a math teacher at the K-12 level, you already came in with the pedagogical skills. You knew how to provide instruction. You knew how to differentiate and do those things. Well, yeah, but and not only that, but, you know, my role, too, as a math teacher educator is that I need to teach my students, my teacher candidates, pedagogy so that they can teach their students, right? Yeah, that's um, true. That's mm-hmm, true. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like, that's something that has to be more of a focus, especially with math. I know when I got out of my grad school and finally got my teaching license, yeah, I knew how to do all the math, but it's totally different when you have to break it down to 12 and 13-year-olds who are already coming in with a fixed mindset about their math ability, and you got to build up their confidence so that's where you learn the scaffolding, the differentiating, all these things that we hear. I had to learn how to do that <laughs> to reach them. And I mean, and even things like how do you facilitate group work, right? Mm. So, you know, like I'm a big proponent of complex instruction. I was very lucky. I got to do my student teaching with um, Laura Evans and Lisa Jilk at San Lorenzo High School. And you know, um, and so I, I had this great opportunity to learn about complex instruction that my first year t- teaching. So my first year teaching right out of college, I taught at Berkeley High School on an emergency credential. I didn't know anything about pedagogy. I knew I was supposed to try to have groups, but I didn't know anything about group roles, group expectations, group accountability, group worthy tasks, low floor, high ceiling multiple ability treatments, like none of those things. And so I just, I cried every day after fourth period in the staff bathroom, my very first year teaching, you know, and then I went 
back to school to get my master's and my credential and actually learn pedagogy um, because I just, you know, like I kind of knew what I was supposed to do, but there were so many pieces involved, you know, and, and I think that there's so many pieces involved is like the respect that we have for like the field of math education, right? That there are actually so many different things to learn, you know, we can talk about the five practices and cognitive demand and the true framework and complex instruction, accountable talk, social justice pedagogy, culturally sustaining pedagogy in the math classroom, right? It's like so much. And so, you know, I think when we try to accelerate too much, putting folks in the classroom, educators at, at any grade level, Right. It's sort of like a disrespect to the complexities of teaching. hundred percent. And the fact that we believe we're supposed to know all those different things mm -hmm. after year one. That's a crime in itself. To be conditioned to believe that we're supposed to master all these different things, just the language alone is a process like a lot of terms that you said i didn't know until probably year two or three mm -hmm. yeah i like all of the jargon yeah alphabet soup of i mean i but i also at the same time like i also understand the cost of getting your credential and your master's right so when they have undergraduate teacher certification programs where you get your credential with your undergraduate degree, like I, I think that that's great, you know? So I, I understand the tension between wanting to be able to finish your program in a year because of the mm -hmm. financial burden and investment, right? Um, versus, you know, having the time. Um, and I think, you know, there are some organizations or universities that are trying to work on that structurally Right. Um, but I, I do think it's still a challenge, especially because, you know, as we know, like right now, so many teachers are leaving the profession. Yeah, too many of them, too many. Um, and we'll, I want to talk more about that because there's some thoughts I have uh, regarding that. But uh, let's talk about the next segment. So okay. we're going to talk about show your work. So in this segment, it's about the receipts. Now, before we get into your receipts, show your work is a phrase that we hear all the time in our math classrooms. I know I've said it thousands of times throughout my career. You've said it a number of times. You have students who come up to us with work that provide solutions, but maybe not the requisite mathematical evidence that we're looking for and we're like okay this looks great and all but show me your work how do i know how you got to where you are not that you're cheating or anything i just need to see step by step how you're thinking about the math because i think we focus so much on the solution and not enough on the process and I believe that you can learn more about a person's math ability by the process that they took and how they articulate their thinking as opposed to the answer itself. 
Mm-hmm. So um, with that being said, in terms of just receipts, you've done a lot of work around social justice and you've done a ton of research regarding it. And I want to take some time to really dive in um, to that. So the question I have for you is, first off, in your mind, what is social justice, number one, and how does that intersect with the study of mathematics? Um, So for me, when I think about social justice, um, I think about dismantling interlocking systems of oppression, right? So... I think about capitalism, ableism, imperialism, white supremacy, cis heteropatriarchy, um, you know, and then I try to think about on the flip side of that, you know, how can we think about joy, wellness, um, you know, Dr. Rochelle Gutierrez's work around rehumanizing mathematics, right? So not just thinking about dismantling these negative things, but also like, uplifting our own freedom um, and liberation and wellness through mathematics. And so um, when I think about social justice and mathematics, I think about it in terms of, you know, in order to analyze social injustices, we often use mathematics to analyze those injustices. Um, And I do think it happens on the flip side also, where sometimes students can be motivated to engage in the mathematics because of the social justice issue that they may be passionate about. Um, but I don't, I, I'm, I'm very, uh, I guess I'm anti <laughs> the argument that social justice math is just a way to engage kids because I think the goal of social justice mathematics is much bigger than that. It is about working towards social justice Um, as well as thinking about our wellness and, you know, drawing on the work of Dr. Sean Ginwright, um, thinking about radical healing. Um, So I um, published an article this past year in the Journal of Research and Mathematics Education, where I talk about these affective goals in social justice mathematics. So I add on to Dr. Rico Gutstein's dominant mathematical goals um, and our critical goals, like our social justice goals. And I add on these affective goals that are about relationship building, you know, that teachers are doing. Any good teacher is building relationships, right? Um, Thinking about community wellness and how can we heal ourselves in our community through engaging in um, social justice math work. Um, so for me, that's, that's really what I think about. And I've had the opportunity to, um, work with, with some amazing teachers who are doing this work. And now I'm working with a group of teachers, um, through a grant funded project with teachers in Pennsylvania to help them learn how to use social justice mathematics and how do we, um, really front end the action piece. So rather than thinking about what is the action that we might be taking at the end of the the task, we're thinking about what is what are the actions that are being taken? Um, what is the resistance of marginalized communities that is happening? So that then once we engage kids in the task, they know, okay, you know, people are doing things, people who look like me are 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 doing this work. 
Um, and it's not, you know, like, oh my gosh, I'm learning about all of these injustices that affect my community and that's demoralizing, right? It, it's, it's really meant to be empowering so that students can then take a leadership role as, as change makers in their school and society. And these are all things that we have to cover um, when we talk about social justice. But you mentioned a lot of different research there. And for the average K-12 educator, they're probably thinking to themselves, like, what the heck is Carrie talking about? Because <laughs> a lot of things that you mentioned is great research. Um, some of these are publications I've had a chance to look through just to get an idea of, of what it is. But one thing I've noticed is with social justice, we have a tendency to interchange it with culturally responsive teaching, culturally relevant teaching. And I think social justice is a part of that, but it's not a direct equivalency, if that makes sense, in terms of how we view it. So for K-12 teachers, what steps could they take to start incorporating social mm -hmm. justice, not only into the curriculum, but into the overall pedagogical practice? Yeah, actually, oh, well, I'm about to cite another article, but I... <laughs> go for this it. Is, okay. Uh, this is like, this is a really good question because I one time got invited to, um, or that's, that's a longer story. But this is a really great question. Dr. Lori Rubel has a 2017 article in the Journal of Urban Mathematics Education where she um, kind of breaks down, you know, reform-oriented pedagogy, complex instruction, culturally relevant pedagogy, and social justice mathematics. So that's something, you know, I can send you the link. We can maybe put it in the, in the show notes. Is that, is yes, that how the po podcast works? Yes. <laughs> Um, and, um, and so I also just put in the chat for you, Kwame, maybe we could share also, but I, I did put together, um, uh, oh, sorry. We have a little visitor, um, some resources for, uh, K-12 educators with some social justice, uh, math and science resources. But I would say, um, so, I mean, I, I will say, though, I do think that all of these things are related, right? So, for instance, the group of teachers that I'm working with in um, Pennsylvania, some of them did um, alternative certification programs. And so um, they didn't have as much opportunity to learn about, you know, like we were talking about, around pedagogy and, and math pedagogy in particular. So I do think that if you want to use culturally relevant pedagogy or social justice pedagogy in your math class, you should also be using reform-oriented practices, meaning that you're not lecturing exclusively to your students, right? It's not just plug and chug, um, you're gonna copy what I'm doing, that students are actually getting to do the cognitive load and the cognitive lifting of um, of doing the mathematics, right? Like they're using complex instruction or, um, you know, using the five practices. So I, I would say that that's like the start, right? Is using um, equity oriented practices, 
building relationships. Um, and then I think that teachers can start using social justice math tasks, right, that are relevant to their students. There are a number of different resources now. There's the, um, the Corwin. Actually, I have one right here. Um, books, like this is the middle school one, for mm -hmm. instance, right? Um, and so these are really good springboards, I think, for teachers to try um, and to then get student input. So with the Pennsylvania teachers, actually just earlier today, I had a meeting on Zoom with the teacher and her students because we wanted to ask the students, what do you, what, what is actually relevant to you? You know, um, we want to do this task, but what do you think is actually going to be relevant to you as well as your classmates? Um, so I think, you know, being able to start, being able to have conversations around social issues in the classroom. I know that um, my postdoc, Kara Haynes, she's often um, asking me about, you know, like, well, are the teachers going to feel uncomfortable talking about racial justice because all of the mm -hmm. teachers are white? And I'm like, oh, I didn't think about that because I'm not a white person. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so um, I think there's a lot of even um, just sociopolitical consciousness building that folks can do. So I actually, in this um in this resource that I made, it's, it's just a Google Doc. I'm not very tech savvy. It's just a Google Doc. But at the end of it, I have some resources, you know, like people can watch 13th by Ava DuVernay. They can read A New Jim Crow. They can watch Race the Power of an Illusion. You know, there are so many uh, resources out there, I think, for folks to um, help with critical consciousness building that I think then supports their ability to facilitate social justice math tasks because oftentimes, you know, if you don't actually understand the social injustice, it becomes really hard to try to do a task around it. Um, you know, and I think and I guess my one last thing I want to say around that is that I think like one of the things that I've been um, reflecting about, or I, I had a conversation with my good friend, Taika Shu, who is an amazing social justice math teacher in the Bay Area. Um, and we were talking about, I guess, like folks of privileged backgrounds so I guess I'll just be specific, like, yes, please. <laughs> like white folks learning about white supremacy and racism, right? Right. And learning about the experiences of folks of color. Um, and really, you know, we, we went to the same schools that they did, right? Like my high school was 90% kids of color, right? But all of the all of what I know about my own Japanese American history is work that I did on my own, like VHS tapes that I bought, books mm -hmm. that I read, documentaries, events that I went to. You know, it's it's not like I didn't get to take an ethnic studies class, right? So the extra work is 
folks of color, we're doing that extra work too to learn about our own, our stories, right? Because that's not something that any of us got in our K-12 education, you know? So I, I do think that there needs to be this commitment to this foundational understanding in addition to these pedagogical um, strategies that we can use in our classrooms. I hope that wasn't too like. No, I was following you. Uh, that okay, was, okay. <laughs> no, that was good because I think these are things that teachers need to hear. And earlier you mentioned uh, Dr. Danny Martin, who actually talks about the racial hierarchy and mathematical yes. ability, which yes. I feel like is a very important document people should read because when we talk about implicit bias, a lot of it stems from that. Right. from from that perspective mm -hmm. and this is something that has still been maintained up until this point but i had a question about social justice math lessons mm -hmm. is a lesson a social justice math lesson if there's no community service component to it Hmm. And I only ask that because when we think about social justice, it's about reinvesting into historically marginalized communities. So would it still count as a social justice math lesson if we're not doing any kind of reinvesting in some form within that lesson? So this is such a good question. And, you know, like, you know, we, we were both middle school, high school you know, public school teachers, right? So, um, and also like mathematics is such a heavily tested subject. Yes. So there, there's a time crunch issue, right? So I get, I, I don't necessarily want to say or, or make it sound like it's bad or it's not authentic or real enough if, you don't have the time to do that, right? Because as someone who was a classroom teacher in New York for 10 years and I was a math coach, like I understand the time crunch. I understand, you know, um, kids who are at different points in their math journey with dominant mathematics, right? Um, and that we also want our students to be able to pass through those gatekeepers, even though they're going to critique the system at the same time. Um, so, I mean, yes, ideally, I think that's what we should be doing, you know, and if there are ways to partner with the social studies teacher or advisory, you know, or an elective class to be able to get that done. But I, I, I don't want to say that, well, if you don't do it, then it's not <laughs> it's not authentic enough because I still think that people should be, um, oh, I mean, I guess there's pitfalls too, but I, I don't want people to feel discouraged and I don't want people to feel like surveilled. Right. You know, like, oh, well, someone's going to say the social justice police are going to come and say like, well, I did that wrong. You know, because that, mm -hmm. that just feels like surveillance to me. Um, but I did want to mention another great resource is the um, Learning for just Justice. 
the social justice standards that actually the Corwin books like draw, I promise I'm like, I'm not getting paid to, but I just actually really like these series of books. Um, but these lessons draw on that. It's the old uh, teaching for tolerance, but that's another good yes. framework, I think, for teachers who are interested in social justice. Yeah, and I know there's a high school version of of that mm -hmm. book as well. That's blue, right? I think the high school one is actually white. White. It, I feel like there's a the blue one too. Uh, yeah, Maybe I mean it's like it's, it's like white on the outside, and then I just because the teachers that I'm working with they call it the white book. <laughs> so in my mind, it's like now it's ingrained in my mind. It's the white book. Ah, uh, cool, cool. But you know what's interesting about social justice uh, math, and you mentioned this earlier, we live in a very high stakes, standardized testing culture, right? And the way the tests are formatted, it forces a lot of our students to focus heavily on procedural knowledge memorizing algorithms and just knowing steps and doing routine problems. And we think about social justice math, it transcends that, that line of reasoning because now we're contextualizing these numbers, we're contextualizing data um, within these different marginalized communities. So how are we able to build those cross-curricular connections if there's a time crunch, if the focus is on getting those scores, which will determine whether or not I have a job for next year, because mm -hmm. let's keep it real. A lot of teacher evaluations are tied to how students perform on these state tests, unfortunately. So when you have that pressure in the back of your mind, how could one possibly focus on building those cross-curricular relationships with other faculty members, even though that would be great because that's something that yeah. should be happening more often in our schools? I mean, so, okay, when I, one of the things that the school that I taught at did, you know, Vanguard High School, Title I school in New York City, we actually changed the whole uh, math requirement. Mm -hmm. So our kids took a double block of math for four years. So they took time-wise, like seat time, I guess, if you want to call it. Sure. Eight years of math, right? Even though the requirement for New York State was three years. Right. Because and so that was our way of structurally trying to give ourselves the opportunity to have time to do that. I, I will say, though, actually, something that you said earlier, I don't know if uh, whenever we're doing a social justice math task, sometimes we could do that. And the math that we're using is actually not cognitively demanding. Mm. Talk about that. So there's that tension, right? That like, you know, the math involved in this is not necessarily cognitively demanding. 
it's it's not that complex, right? Um, and that's not to say that we shouldn't do those tasks, but I am a proponent of, I mean, and I, I think most teachers would agree with this, right? It's like you do everything that works. So if you're going to do also an abstract, you know, are you familiar with a painted cube task, right? Yes. It's like how many faces are going to be painted, right? Like it's very complex and kids who are like, visual learners who can like visualize things like way better than I can. Right. Um, like I, I think we should do those too. Right. And so um, I, I just think that there there's complexities in, and I, I, I just want to specify I'm using dominant mathematics. Right. Um, when I talk about school mathematics, mm -hmm. but, but the dominant mathematics that we're using in a social justice math task, can be hopefully cognitively demanding, but I know that it's not always necessarily that way. And I know that that's a challenge to creating social justice math tasks. Yeah, I, I hear that. I definitely hear that. But there's just so much involved when we talk about uh, social justice. And I feel like in order for us to do that with fidelity, it's going to require school systems to structurally change the way that they go about school mm -hmm. from the assessments to even the block schedules. When we get to the high school level, there, there's so many things that would have to be reformed in order to bring out that type of authentic learning. Yeah. I mean, and I don't, you know, Kwame, I don't know how I feel even about the word like with fidelity. Hmm. Because, right, even though, even though, like, I, this is something that I study, yeah. maybe someone else has a, a completely different, brilliant idea, right? Like, who's to say that we know, right? Because then I feel like, I, sorry, I, I had kind of like a, a, a reaction to the word fidelity because it's used so much in the dominant frame for reasons. I, I hear, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> like fidelity, like oh, like we're the police. Like we're gonna check you for right, every like, oh, thing you, that you do. Yeah, you which didn't do it this way. Like a perfectionist, mm -hmm. right. that perfectionist mindset. Yeah, right. I got you. I right, got you. right. <laughs> but I, 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 yeah. But I, I feel did. you on that. Okay. I did want to say too that um, I do think it's it's very important for students of privileged backgrounds to also engage in social justice math. And not that, you know, marginaliz marginalization and privilege are a binary, you know, like these things are very complex and context dependent. Um, but there was a teacher that I worked with, Maggie, who worked in a private school setting. And she was really helping her students to learn about systems of oppression, to learn about their own privilege and what they could do to support the work that historically marginalized communities were already doing, right? Because sometimes that work can get co-opted by people of privilege, right? So yes. she was making sure that that wasn't happening. Um, she had the leeway and the freedom of not having to worry about standardized tests, not having to like follow this day by day 
scope and sequence, right? She had the ability to, to create whole units like social justice, ex mathematics experiences with students. Um, and, and her work is really, really powerful as well. And so I just wanted to highlight that, like we need everybody right in, in this work for racial justice, um, LGBTQ plus justice, right? Like we need everyone to be working together. And that's how it has to be. It has to be as a collective. I mean, the work that we do when we talk about justice cannot be done in silos. It cannot be done individually. It's just impossible. Because that's what perpetuates the dominant culture that mm -hmm. still um, exists today. Yeah, like my um, all-time idol is Yuri Kochiyama. Do you know who this is? I do. And she, um, I had the opportunity to meet her. Um, oh, nice. I did, yes, when she was uh, still with us uh, in New York, you know, through my organizing work. And people knew that, you know, I idolized her. And so I um, met her through a friend. I have a picture with her literally like inside of the a women's bathroom because <laughs> someone was like, oh, take a picture with Yuri. Um, and, you know, like that's what Yuri was all about was like solidarity with the Black Panthers. Um, you know, her relationship, her friendship with Malcolm X. She did work with the Young Lords. And for me, you know, like as someone who is Japanese American and my family experienced the incarceration during World War II. Like my own father was incarcerated, right? Wow. So for me, it's like, it's not history, right? It's literally, it's just, it's the things in my family, all my aunties and uncles, um, both sets of grandparents lived through and had lived through the trauma and, and won't really talk about, you know? And so, um, that experience, I think, and then seeing Japanese American role models, you know, being in solidarity with other communities, like being in solidarity, like when 9-11 happened, I remember there were so many statements from the Japanese American community to say, you know, we support Muslim Americans. Um, you know, there's some work, uh, recent work around reparations for Black Americans, right? Mm -hmm. And Japanese Americans really supporting that. Um, oh my gosh, I saw this footage from one of the, uh, I think it was like a congressional hearing when Japanese Americans were um, going through trying to get reparations from the US government. And so many different communities came in with, with um, their support and their affirmation. And so Seeing that solidarity is, is, you know, like the opposite of white supremacy. White supremacy is trying to split us up and, you know, like this divide and conquer mentality. And um, just, just the beauty of that solid, like I could cry, like it's so touching to me, you know, to see that type of solidarity amongst like folks um, of marginalized backgrounds, like supporting each other. Um, is, is like, it's, it's just like so powerful to me. And I think those are the counter stories and examples that our children need to see. 
that cross-racial solidarity. And there's so many examples. I mean, you mentioned uh, Yuri Kochiyama, but I'm also thinking about someone like a Grace Lee Boggs Mm -hmm. and the work that she was able to do with the Detroit Black Power Movement, you know, and the fact that her husband was a black man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How many of our young people know about that, and and so right. many other examples uh, of people who have done work in, you know, for other historically marginalized communities outside of theirs. So it really just speaks to the importance of looking at this work through an intersectional lens, because you know you mentioned earlier, yeah, we focus so much on our BIPOC folks, but there are poor white folks too. Now all white folks are in privileged situations. So we have to look at that. When you look at it from that standpoint and and just from a positionality standpoint, you realize, okay, it's not as, it's not literally black and white. It's not that simple. It's so interconnected that you really got to look at the different markers and where they stand. And in what context are you in? Exactly. Because those power dynamics shift depend Mm -hmm. on the setting you're in. (laughs) Right, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So I actually had one more question before we get to lightning round. And okay. this kind of goes back to the beginning, right? Okay. Was there one particular moment that ignited your journey into social justice and activism that you can remember? I don't know if it was a particular moment for me. I mean, so really why I got into education in the first place was because of my own family's incarceration experience during World War II. So, you know, from a very, very, very young age, I understood white supremacy and racism, you know, like the, the literal like physical impact of my father was born right before they were incarcerated, wow. you know, and he was the ninth of 10. And actually one of my cousins and I were going to visit where they were incarcerated um, in a couple of weeks. So we already know, we've already said, we know we're going to cry a lot in that experience. Um, And so, yeah, so growing up, I I always knew about racial injustice. Um, And then when I was in high school, you know, my high school was over 4,000 students, um, 90% students of color, Right. Which was like such a blessing to be able to have that experience. And honestly, I thought that's what the rest of the United States looked like. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, like because it was so highly tracked. Mm -hmm. Right. I saw so many classmates like fall through the cracks. Right. Right. And so I just saw all of those inequities in school. And those were like racialized, too. Right. Because we were talking about, you know, Dr. Danny Martin's like the racial hierarchy of mathematics and how teachers saw different kids. Right. And so the racism that I witnessed also in my own high school is what got me into teaching. Um, And then, you know, like the activism, I think of Yuri Kochiyama got me into doing community organizing in, in New York City with the New York Collaborative. New York Collective of Radical Educators, working Jonathan Osler and I working on the Creating Balance in an Unjust World Conference that we're, that our group is still planning to revive. So stay tuned. We're still hoping to hold it again. And I think too, 
because my principal allowed me to take my students to protests and rallies when I was a high school teacher, getting to see the power of my high school kids on the mic, you could hear a pin drop. The politicians mm -hmm. would speak, but when high school students, my high school students spoke, it's like everyone like leaned in and listened. And so like that power of young folks, right? Of like the adults just, we just need to get out of the way. <laughs> And seeing the power of young folks, I think that also like helped to really ignite the fire underneath me or within me. Man, and that's what it's about. That's what agency looks like when you can just step to the side mm -hmm. and let the young people do their thing. Right. That's the goal. That should be mm -hmm. the goal. Mm -hmm. <sighs> but Carrie, we could go on and on. I know, I know. <laughs> talking about this. Uh, but I do want to make sure we finish off what's been an awesome conversation with the lightning round. So I have just a few quick hitter questions uh, so that people can get to know you a little bit better. So uh, first question is, what's your favorite math subject to or skill to teach or learn about? So my favorite is teaching the unit circle because okay. the unit circle is super conceptual. When you think about the trigonometry within each location on the unit circle, um, and then when you get students to start to graph trig functions, um, so that for me would be my favorite to teach. All right, cool. And what about the most difficult math concept to teach or learn? So for that, I think division of polynomial expressions by long division. Mm, yeah, that's tough. It's I doable, just, but it's tough. It's so procedural, you know? It's like there's all these different rules and we're filling our headspace with these rules. So yeah, that would be my, my answer for that one. Mm. But there's so many things you have to know as well. You also, like, you have to know about exponents. Right. Different yeah. different rules, power rules, you know, factoring. Like there's so much involved in that skill in itself that if you don't know any of those things, that whole thing just becomes more difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, let me see. So I know you do Capoeira. Thank you. My father, oh, not my father-in-law, my oh. brother-in-law, my brother-in-law is huge on it. Oh. Oh, he he's like into it. Yes, yes, like so that's what happened. So, that, so much so that, you know, he be speaking Portuguese sometimes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And stuff and oh, yeah, yeah. We all, we all learn Portuguese. Yeah. He got the music going, but he he goes full throttle. He actually plays the traditional instruments. We all do. We all have to learn oh. every. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's, it's serious. <laughs> like he really put me on to the to the whole culture of it, and he's even taught my niece and nephew how to do some of the moves. And even my son, when we visited um, my family out in Chicago, so he's he's very much into that movement. It's, it's super dope. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to after this reach out to because I'm going to Chicago next week. So maybe we could find a place for me to play a little couple when I'm out there. 
Oh, 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 nice. So I definitely <laughs> got to connect you to my brother-in-law. Yeah. yeah, I got to connect you to, to him. Yeah, because he's always looking for people to to vibe with when it comes to that, uh, mm -hmm. for sure. But what got you into Capoeira? Oh, you know, so I was living in Brooklyn and there was a Capoeira studio that was a half block away from me. Uh-huh. And well, the funny thing was, is that I took one class and I said, eh, I don't really like this. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I really wanted to get back into fitness because I was a, I was an athlete in college. I was a springboard and platform diver. Mm -hmm. And um, I signed up for, they had like a month long series. And I liked the commitment of that. You know, like I paid for this month. I'm supposed to be here on these days at these times. And then I just, I don't know if it's a bad phrase to say nowadays. I drank the Kool-Aid. Like I just fell in love with it, you know? And I, I when I was training Capoeira, when I lived in New York, I was six days a week speaking Brazilian, you know, learning Brazilian Portuguese, um, you know, learning the instruments, um, playing capoeira. I mean, I have thought a lot too around like cultural appropriation around like me learning an Afro-Brazilian art form, mm -hmm. you know? So I, you know, I, I, I don't know necessarily where I, I stand on that, but like for me, when I'm playing capoeira in the Hoda, it's like nothing else matters, you know? It's, this this type of focus and joy and you know art um that i i haven't really played capoeira in a long time wow and, and you know what's amazing about about it is that it's all about how you manipulate space yes yes and how you manipulate the movements that you make because you come in there's nothing procedural about it so i like to kind of look at it connected to math there's more about how you interact mm -hmm. with your partner so it's very reactive and you have to be in sync with one another yeah for me that was the hardest thing when i first started because i had you know i was a diver and i had done sports acrobatics so you know for those things it's like you have your skill and you're gonna do your skill and when I first started Capoeira, I was really into the floreos, like the acrobatic movements. Uh-huh. And I wouldn't pay attention to my partner to have a conversation with my partner. Right. In the beginning, like I was in my own world, which is not what Capoeira is. Like It's a conversation with my partner and exactly what you said, like the space and being able to be close enough and not too far away and yeah all of that like the beauty of that um like it's this embodied you know beauty that you get to experience yeah for sure and this is the second and last question okay okay if you can invite three influential figures dead or alive to dinner who would they be oh i don't remember this question on my list okay okay um yuri kochiyama my grandmother, who is still alive, Rosie All Watanabe, right. um, and Bob Moses. Ooh, R.I.P. Yes, rest in yes. power. Yes, yes. 
Mm-hmm. That's a powerful table right there. It's a powerful table. All right, well, Carrie, thank you so much for coming on again. This has been a dope conversation. Um, we definitely gonna have to do this again down the road because there's still so much that I wanted to cover, but we we got a good chunk today. We definitely yeah. got a good chunk. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me. I was really excited to receive your invitation and yes. this was super fun. Awesome. And then of course let people know how they can connect with you on social media. And if you have a website you want to share, uh, this is the space for you to do that. Oh, thanks. I have a Twitter. My Twitter is just my name at Carrie Coca. And I have a website. It's really just links to a link tree page. (laughs) But my website is just my name, CarrieCoca.com. And yes, I would love to, to meet you all and engage and, you know, because we definitely need a bigger community in this work. There it is, y'all. So make sure y'all connect. You know, let's keep that networking going because that's essential in this movement. You know, we, we got to do the collective work. Got to do it. All right. So thank you again, Carrie. And we're going to do this again another time. Thank you so See much, you. Kwame. Yes. So you have a good rest of the day. Thank you. You too. Ah, thank you so much. All right, y'all. So we're about to end another episode of A Day Talk for Educators Live. And as always, I wish you all good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, y'all. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Radical Math Talk. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, and all other streaming platforms. We are always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard today, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at IdentityTalk4, numeral 4, educators.com. I'll say it one more time identity talk for educators.com thank you and have a great day